all public universities in a country, in a developing country, were closed. I don't know how long we'll be paying for that, but you can think about generation of students who are really way behind because they couldn't complete their degrees, they couldn't go to school, and most of them couldn't do anything. And of course, for faculty, it was also a disaster because that means no more research, uh, no research programs, no laboratory works, nothing. I'm your host, Assam Ibrahim, and this is the Science in Exile podcast. In this series, we get an insight into the lives of scientists who are in exile, and we discuss how the past, present, and future of science can be preserved across borders. This podcast is part of an ongoing refugee and displaced scientist initiative run by Science International, a joint project by the World Academy of Sciences, the Inter-Academy Partnership, and the International Science Council. On today's episode, we have Professor Alfred Babot, a social scientist from Cote d'Ivoire, or otherwise known as Ivory Coast, advocating and working towards sustainable socio-economic and social-political development. Alfred is a member of the Scholars at Risk Network Board and the co-founder of Share the Platform, an initiative that works with refugees on program design, policy making, and action. Following Cote d'Ivoire's disputed 2010 elections, Alfred's country fell into a civil war. In 2011, after facing death threats, he was forced to flee the country with his family. Alfred currently resides in the United States, working as a professor at the University of Massachusetts. Now, Alfred tells us about the conflicts he faced in Cote d'Ivoire. So, I think we have two important phases or steps. The first one was in 2002 when the rebellion broke out. And uh, at that time, only universities and professors who were in the region controlled by rebels were targeted. As you might know, most conflicts are ethnic-based, and uh, those who were not from the ethnicity of the rebels leaders were targeted. And of course, even if they were not targeted, most of them feared for their life, and they fled the, the area. The university and the campus were seized by the rebels, so it became military camp for rebels. The president at that time did his best to try to resume, keep alive this institution. In the capital, we started having classes at any auditorium that we can find. For example, uh, cinemas, theaters, where we can have 500 seats, 300 seats, every places to teach. This was really difficult, but we were able to keep that for almost eight years, from 2002 to 2010. But when the, the war broke out again, in 2010-2011, of course, it became worse for faculty and uh, university in Abidjan because the war really happened this time in the capital in Abidjan. And this time, universities were really destroyed. Some of the dormitories were used for, you know, again, for uh, military operations. It was really the collapse of the higher education institution in Côte d'Ivoire. The president decided to close the university for one academic year. I think it was even for more than one year. It was probably one year and a half. So this was a disaster for research, for teaching, for students, for faculty. All public universities in a country, in a developing country, were closed. I don't know how long we'll be 
paying for that, but you can think about generation of students who are really way behind because they couldn't complete their degrees, they couldn't go to school, and most of them couldn't do anything. And of course, for faculty, it was also a disaster because that means no more research, uh, no research programs, no laboratory works, nothing. Was there a specific reason that professors such as yourself um, were targeted during the Civil War? Uh, it's the connection between universities and the political arena. Those who are leading enlightening societies are coming from universities. Most of them are professors at universities, especially after the independence. These are the elites. These are the scholars who are leading many social movements like uh, unions, any kind of intellectual movement to push for freedom, to push for democracy. This former president, President Laurent Gbagbo, was himself professor of history at the University of Kokodi. So was there any specific incident that happened that made you realize that you need to leave the country? Uh, even though I didn't have any connection with the administration of this president, but because I'm a professor at the university, I was a part of those who were targeted. I was also kind of member of the ethnic group of this president. Also, I did some international uh, conferences. I had some positions where I was critical against uh, the political violence or the political situation in my country. So because of this received threat, so I wanted to keep my family safe. And it wasn't only me. Many of us were threatened. So you won't stay until the threat comes to you. And I, I put my family first to make them uh, travel. But my kids were crying. Was crying. My, my daughter was crying. She, she didn't want to go without uh, that. But uh, I needed to make sure that they will reach the, where they were going safe. They were to identify themselves not with my name, but my wife would be showing her birth name and uh, stating that she has lost her ID card. And uh, because she's a woman and she had the kids, I think she was able to play this card and to cross. Instead of being with me, that would have put them more in danger. And then a friend of us from Geneva who was really, really uh, helpful, really nice, calling people to, to help us. That was late March, and the, the situation was getting worse in Abidjan. It is at the same time when we heard from an uh, international organization, a uh, human rights organization, that the rebels killed 800 people in one day in, in this town of Dwekwe. So after I sent my family, finally I decided not to stay behind and to flee myself and join my, my family. Of course, it was hard to, you know, to travel, to cross all this area from Abidjan to Accra, but I, I made it. And from Accra, I continued to Togo where I, and that is yeah. where we, we got ready and we got in touch with uh, School at Risk. And that is how Scholaturis helped me and my family to be relocated in the United States. So, Alfred, as we speak, as you know, uh, we're seeing events unfold in Afghanistan that are causing people, including academics and scientists, to flee. Um, what would you like to tell your fellow academics in Afghanistan right now? Yes, with this current situation, I'm really concerned about what's happening in Afghanistan, but not mm -hmm. only to be concerned, but to think about what the first thing that we should do, I think, is to show this 
scientific solidarity. I, I know that it's really hard to live, especially if you're doing your research in the area, but uh, I'm now myself a board member of Scholar to Risk. I have been seeing uh, what we have been doing the last couple of weeks to anticipate and to be proactive. To, so we have launched a lot of inquiries to request to universities to host some, some of our refugees, scientists from Afghanistan, so Scholar to Risk and many other organizations involved in this kind of activities are doing their best to, to give them the chance to be saved first and then to, to start over uh, some of the activities and to, to welcome my peers from Afghanistan, offering them, as I had the chance, the, some temporary positions at the universities, at uh, some institutes, uh, research institutes, research centers, where they can rest, breathe a little bit. And uh, if they have the chance to start over the academic research, the academic work, from all those people coming out of Afghanistan, at some point, we need to look at what knowledge they're bringing you know, with them, what culture they're bringing with them, what talent they have, what can they do for themselves and for their host country, their host society, their host community. And that is where we should be putting more focus, more money to, to build up the, the power. So I would like to use this opportunity to send them my, my solidarity. Refugee scientist, displaced scientist, um, or scientist in exile, what status do you identify with, if any at all? Um, and how connected do you feel towards that status, Alfred? Yes, uh, I was a scholar at risk, right, first. Scholar at risk because I was in this war zone where I was, I was uh, about to be assassinated. I was about to be killed. This status moved and changed over my period of refuge in Ghana first and then in Togo. And uh, I became in Togo, someone was a refugee. And um, I couldn't say I was a, a scientist in exile in, in Togo, for example, because I stayed in Togo for eight months, but I couldn't really go back to teaching or doing research. I was doing nothing all day. So this situation, this period, I could say at that time, I was just a refugee. It wasn't connected to my profession. And I tried after four months, I tried to go by myself at the University of uh, Lome in Togo. And uh, I was begging some colleagues in sociology department to say, um, I feel like I'm dying because there is nothing to do. Is it possible for me to come and give some lecture, you know, for free? Uh, I'm not asking you to pay me nothing, but I want to start to living again through my profession. At least being before students, having the conversation with students, having conversation with some of my colleagues would be something that would really help me. And when I came in the United States through the scholar at a risk. So I was hosted at one university. So I think at that time I was really a scientist refugee. And uh, now I can say maybe I'm kind of getting out of this identity. So since you've migrated to the U.S., how has your work and research changed or evolved? Um, and what were some of the opportunities uh, that allowed that change to occur? Right. As a scientist, even if I'm a scientist, 
since I'm a refugee and I was granted asylum, for example, I'm not allowed to go back to my country, right? So how do you research? Usually when we're doing our research in our countries, our research topics, sites of research, whether you're social scientist or not, is kind of located in these parts of your country. For me, most of my research sites were in Cote d'Ivoire. I was doing research on uh, land and then on political uh, violence and youth in Cote d'Ivoire. Probably would probably be the same for my colleagues from Afghanistan who would be moving. So when you find yourself in London or in Paris or in, in the U.S., then the question is, how do you continue this kind of research? How do you keep working on this kind of topic, right? And you have to build what we call a kind of gray zone of new identity in terms of research. So you have to find some intellectual arrangement in which you can keep working in, for me, in the American academia, at the same time keeping my research through some network in, in Cote d'Ivoire, where I could be asking some of my colleagues, graduate students, to collect information for me, to collect data for me. And uh, of course, you have the research environment is totally different. You have plenty of resources that you couldn't have access to when you were in your country. So here I have uh, access to libraries. You have access to books. You have uh, fundings for, to attend conferences. You have funding to, to present your research. You have funding to go you know, somewhere else to do your research. And uh, of course, develop networking. So, Alfred, you're one of the founders of the Share the Platform initiative. Could you tell us a little bit about the program? Uh, Share the Platform is an initiative that's really for emphasizing that we need to center our efforts on the skills and competencies of refugees. Okay, whether they're artists, whether they're journalists, whether they're uh, academics, or even if these ordinary people, they have some talents that we need to emphasize. All those agencies which are doing a great work, which are doing a very fantastic work to help those refugees. We are asking them that on the way down, at some point, they need to share the platform, they need to share the podium with the refugees. For the, for the first period of time, they can talk for them, they can talk on behalf of them, okay? But at some point, they need to make some space and give the refugee themselves, you know, the occasion to voice for themselves. And we might be surprised and we might discover many, many talents that those refugees have, but that they're kind of hiding or they don't have the opportunity to talk about if we don't give them the podium, if we don't give them the chance to speak up. Thank you, Professor Alfred Bebo, for being on this episode and sharing your story with Science International. This podcast is part of an ongoing refugee and displaced scientist project called Science in Exile. It's run by Science International, an initiative in which three global science organizations collaborate at the forefront of science policy. These are the International Science Council, the World Academy of Sciences, and the Inter-Academy Partnership. For more information on the Science in Exile project, please head over to council.science slash science in exile. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the values and the beliefs of Science International.